0: Amen, amen. Stay standing, if you would, for the Scripture this morning. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. If you want to grab a pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, it is page 618 in the pew Bible, Jeremiah 31, 33. And it reads for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people this morning I want to preach to you on the topic of belonging belonging to the family of God through the local church let's pray together and ask God for his help father we thank you for this gathering we thank you for this time we pray that you would help us now as we go into your word to understand to see to hear to be changed As we encounter Christ, help me to preach with clarity your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would shape us and fashion us according to your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as I've said before, Christians can learn from a mango tree. We can learn a lesson. As a mango tree has a branch which breaks, all of the nutrients in that tree are channeled into that branch to where the entire tree actually stops growing until that branch is healed. And only when the branch is healed does the tree begin to grow again. It's it's not God's vision for individual Christians to be floating out there on their own in obscurity. A branch disconnected from other branches, from a life source of the tree. But rather, it is the vision of Christ that Christians would be gathered together in committed relationships with actual human beings who have been changed by the gospel in what we call local churches. And the members of these churches are to be regenerate, converted. They share a sense of responsibility for one another. They are A recognizable group and they are marked by a relational kind of approach to life now I wonder if anybody knows what it's like to be broken anybody I see I see that hand the church and church members are not a not a group of perfect people but rather people who know what it's like to be broken, and have admitted their need for a Savior. And they have found that Christ is a sufficient Savior, and Christ has infused these members with His own life, and together they become then a place of growth, a place of fruit-bearing, we're in a series called Peculiar People. It's a series which talks about the marks of a healthy church. What is it that makes a church healthy? And so the first week we looked at the topic of preaching, how regular preaching of the Bible, Scripture, passages, how people are shaped through the preaching of God's Word. The second week we looked at the Gospel, how God's people are saved. Last week we looked at conversion, how God's people are made. And today, we are looking at the topic of belonging. In other words, how are God's people marked off from the world? How are they seen as distinct from those around them? Now, to say that people are marked off, signifies an inside and an outside. And nobody likes boundaries. As a matter of fact, there are some people who have never joined a local church or maybe are uh, holding a local church at arm's length because they don't like the idea of boundaries. They don't like the idea of there having to be an inside and an outside. Now, what I want to do this morning is just first show you that through the Bible, God's people have always been marked off. That there has always been, from Genesis through Revelation, an inside and an outside. There have been boundaries. So, going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, we see that God creates, He creates man and woman. Together they're living in the Garden of Eden. But then what happens after the fall is that they they get kicked out, don't they? I mean, think about this for just a moment. The Garden of Eden is the place of God's glorious, experiential presence on earth. And in the first chapters of the Bible, Eden is emptied, outside, and nobody is inside. Genesis chapter 3, 23 says, the Lord sent him out of the garden. Out. Just a couple chapters later, we again see this theme of inside and outside. In Genesis chapter 7, we see Noah and his big boat, right? Right? The ark. And when the ark was built, what happened? God's judgment came to those on the outside. And Genesis 7, uh, 7 tells us that the Lord shut Noah and his family inside. Marking them off. Protecting them. Going on a few more chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. We see that God, continuing His, His plan of redemptive history, calls a nation through the line of Abraham, eventually through the law that He gives to Moses as they form together, a nation called Israel. And in Genesis 17, verse 10, we see that God says, this is My covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So circumcision, then, would mark off God's people from the rest of the world. Again, we see this pattern of an inside, the circumcised, and an outside, the uncircumcised. The ark, an inside, Noah and his family. The ark, or I'm sorry, at the outside, all of those under God's judgment. Now, as, this, as the Scriptures go on, the pattern continues. Even as we see God beginning to prophesy about a new covenant, which is going to be culminated in what we would call the church, the New Testament church, we see that God prophesies that there is going to be an inside and an outside of this new community. So, Jeremiah 31, you're there because we already turned there and we read it this morning. Look at verse 33 once again. God here is prophesying that there's a new covenant that is to come that is different than the covenant that marked off Israel, but there's a new covenant to come. And He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after, the, after those days, says the Lord, so he's looking forward to this messianic era in which the Christ will come and do something new and bring a new covenant to mark off this Israel, true Israel, is, it's, as, as these people are later called. What he says about this covenant is, is this: He says, "I will put my law in their minds." No longer just written on tablets but on their minds. I, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a parallel with the Ezekiel passage, which we mentioned last week on the topic of conversion. Because that's what's prophesied here is regeneration and conversion, not just for some in the community, but for all that are in this new covenant community. So Ezekiel thirty uh, six twenty six says that in this day, I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of flesh and I will give a heart of flesh. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying that while physical Israel in the Old Testament was marked off by circumcision, you know, it was a physical family with a physical bloodline that you were physically born into. And so therefore, the mark was put on you at birth, at least on the male's circumcision. That was the mark. And as a matter of fact, Israel in the Old Testament was a mixed community, meaning there were some that were part of true Israel, we later discover in Romans, and there were others that were part of physical Israel but were not actually regenerate. They were not actually converted. What's what's new about the new covenant? What's distinct about the new covenant that Jesus comes and institutes with his own blood? What's new about it is that everybody within this covenant is going to be converted. It's not a mixed community. Everybody within the new covenant will be given a new heart. Everybody within the new covenant will be regenerated so in the new testament by the time we get there clearly jesus is doing something new he's bringing a new covenant with him and jesus founds the church he constitutes the church and then uh this rebirth is marked off by baptism think about it like this the old covenant, you're born into that covenant, therefore you get a physical sign at birth. But you're not physically born into the new covenant. You are what? Reborn into the new covenant. Because it's a spiritual family, not a physical family. And so, so then it's mar- you, you are then uh, the sign of that, or the, the, the circumcision happens, not physically, but on our hearts. As our hearts are changed, and then what marks off this community is by the end of Matthew, baptism, to go through this ancient drama to physically show yourself as one who has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the remainder of the New Testament are our, our letters largely written to local churches to these actual gatherings of new covenant believers coming together, committed to one another. It's not heaven. The local church is not heaven. Amen? Somebody better say amen. It's not heaven, but the collective members are a testimony of heaven. Meaning, when they gather, they're a foretaste of the kingdom of God. When they gather, they are a glimpse of glory. When they gather, they are a signpost of heaven. And so again then, in the New Testament, as it relates to the church, we see this theme continue inside and outside. Inside the new covenant family of the church, They are regenerate. And then outside would be those who have not been regenerated. Now let's let's just go to Revelation 22 to cap it all off, shall we? We start in Genesis. We might as well go to the end. Turn to Revelation 22 if you would. It's all the way at the end of the Bible. Last book. Revelation 22, what we see is, is, it's not really the end, but it's actually kind of the beginning. It's the beginning of our eternal bliss with Christ. And what we see is that as Revelation ends, as the Bible closes, it takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, when Eden was emptied. And what we're told in Revelation is that Eden is refilled. Look at Revelation, well, before I read Revelation 22, let me say this. Revelation 20, we see the evil is done away with. In Revelation 20, we see that the final judgment on those who have rejected God, rebels against God, and they are forever judged in the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 22, we see that God's people refill a new Eden. So, verse 1, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street uh, of the city. Also, on either side of the river is what? The tree of life, taking us back to Eden. No longer is Eden empty. But this new Eden, the presence of God, he says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Filled with the presence of God. Eden repopulated. Heaven is on earth. God is worshipped. Christ is with us. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. That is the end of the Bible. That's how it ends. And I'm looking forward to that day. God's people have always been marked off by inside and then there's an outside, meaning there has always been throughout the pages of Scripture an enclosure around the people of God. There's always a differentiation between God's people and the world. There's always a clear demarcation between the people of the flesh and the people of the Spirit. Saying These people here belong to God. Now, this is rebellious in in the world in which we live. We live in a world of a, a flat society where everybody assumes that boundaries are bad. Everybody assumes that if we talk about inside and outside, that we're being old-fashioned or narrow-minded. We live in a world where we just all want to get along, right? Just take down the walls that are between us. Why can't we just simply say we're all children of God? Why can't we all simply say that, you know, there's different approaches to God, there's different pathways to God, and we all, at the end of the day, worship the same God, Why do we have to say that there is a distinction between the people of God and the children of God and those of the world? Doesn't that seem hateful? Doesn't that seem a little mean? Well, certainly, the Bible makes that distinction. I don't know if we could really argue that. If we just read the Scriptures, even if you don't believe it, if you just read the Bible... As as a piece of literature, it's clear that the Bible demarcates between between his people and the and the world. That there is a distinction. The question that we might ask is not whether or not this is biblical, but is it good? Is this good? Here's what I want to say: boundaries are not necessarily bad. But boundaries, the right boundaries, are actually very good. For example, children are boundary markers for a parent's love. You know, if, if I were to say that, you know, I love my children in in no different way than I love other children, I might be considered a bad dad. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I could say that uh, I, I see some of your kids in this room, and I, I love the children in this church. I love your children. But I have a unique and distinct love for my own children, right? And isn't that what makes my children feel a sense of safety and, and love? It makes them feel special, right? Boundaries are not necessarily bad. But boundaries actually mark off love. Or maybe I could use a, a marriage as an example. Imagine a, a marriage with no boundaries. Imagine a, a you know a, a wife who just indiscriminately loves all men with an unrestrained freedom. And says, you know, how can I love just one? I love them all. No, boundaries. Check it out. Boundaries within marriage actually do not produce freedom. I'm sorry. Let me back that up. They do. (laughs) It's good when I catch my uh, (laughs) wrong statement. A lack of boundaries in marriage do not produce freedom. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think sometimes we think, like, oh, I got to be freed from these boundaries so that I can be truly free. And what I'm saying is, is you're, you're not actually truly free when you free yourself from the boundaries. But it's within the boundaries of a marriage. When those boundaries are properly built and high where they ought to be, you are free to love and you are free to trust. Is that not what we just sang? Because of Christ and the boundaries of who Christ is, we are now free to love? We're free to live? We don't reduce the boundaries to have life. We live within them. So boundaries, the right boundaries, are actually very good. And this is for the church as well. So a church needs boundaries. Now, I don't necessarily mean the public service at 10.30 a.m. This service ought to be mixed with all kinds of people. I want non-Christians to come to this service. I want Muslims to come to this service. I want uh, people of every uh, persuasion and idea out there to come to this service. You know, this gathering ought to be a gathering where there are regenerate folks as well as unregenerate folks. 10.30 a.m. on Sundays, invite your friends. Let them come. But who actually constitutes the local church, though, is different than who shows up to the gathering. Does that make sense? Meaning we should not just simply assume that everybody who walks through the door understands church, biblical church membership, wants to be a biblical church member, wants to take on that kind of responsibility. We're going to get into this. But rather, we, we must understand that there's, there's a distinction between who actually constitutes the local church. So as a practical example, when somebody asks me, you know, how many people do you have in your church? I never give them the our, our attendance on Sunday morning as, uh, number as my answer. I tell them how many members we have. Because that's who I understand to be the local church. So here's the big idea. Boundaries create belonging. And my goal is that you, whether you're a member of this church, whether you're not a member of this church, maybe you're visiting from another church and just checking us out, maybe you're not even a Christian, my goal is that all of us would find and feel a sense of belonging within the boundaries of biblical church membership. And so, as Andrew already mentioned today, we're talking about biblical church membership today. Membership, and I'm gonna also talk briefly about biblical church discipline. With all of that said, as a very lengthy introduction, let me give you four points on biblical church membership. Number one, church membership is regenerate. Church membership is regenerate. Now this is simple. The membership of a local church should reflect the membership in heaven. Meaning the names in the church book ought to also be found in the book of life. If they're not in the book of life, they ought not be in the membership book. Are you with me? Meaning the local church should be a pure church i I don't mean a perfect church a pure church is not a perfect church there is no such thing as a perfect church do you know how i know because i'm looking at all of you (laughs) and because i'm the one that's preaching there is no such thing as a perfect church What I mean by a pure church is that we are all to be regenerate. We're to have this new heart that is given to us at conversion that is prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit ought to be giving us all a sense of conviction for our sin, a desire for holiness, love for God, love for our neighbor, meaning Yes, you might find friends at your local church, and I hope you do. But church is not primarily a place just to come and find friends. You might find inspiration at your local church. Inspiration to better your career and do something great in this world. But we don't just simply come to a local church as a place to be inspired. The church is not a social club. If you want to join a social club, there's a good one called the Elks Lodge right around the corner. And they're good friends of ours. If you wonder why everybody's laughing, it's because that's where we used to meet. But no, the church is a holy community. The church is a place where we have been given a new heart. Where we seek love and godliness among us. And so for that reason then, and I'm going to be real practical here, for somebody to join our church, we want to just make sure that they're saved. You know, so we have a little process. We, not, not anybody who just walks forward necessarily would join the church. We want to first have you go through a membership class that we call Basics like the basics of church membership. And then after that, we have an elder sit down with an individual, and we do an elder interview where they hear their testimony and understanding of the gospel. And then after that, the elders then meet together, and we discuss uh, various incoming new members and how we can best serve them and love them. Uh, You know, if we don't think somebody's not a Christian, we don't give them a cold shoulder. We actually just pursue them in a different way and try to, Uh, wrap some people in the church around them to help them better understand the gospel. But by the point when we think, yeah, this, this person is giving evidence of being a Christian, then we bring it to the members, and then we talk to the members about it at a members meeting, and the members then take a vote and bring somebody in as a new member. Now, if you think that's a little cumbersome, let me use Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle as an example. Uh, He had a six-stage process at the tabernacle for incoming members. This is in 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s in London. At, At Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, if you wanted to be a member, you would first show up on a Wednesday night and meet with an elder who would hear your story, and if they were satisfied, they would write it in a book, and then they would then pass you on to the second interview with Pastor Spurgeon himself. Spurgeon would then meet with you and hear your story, hear your testimony, understanding of the gospel. Uh, and, and then if he believed that there was evidence of regeneration in your life, that you were turning from sin and, and hating sin and trying to live a life of holiness, then at the next members meeting, the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, the, the person's name would be brought forward to the membership, and then a member or two members would be assigned to go visit that individual in their home, and they would do their own examination. And they would sit with them and hear their story and, and seek to understand their life and how God has uh, given some uh, uh, victory over sin and what have you. And then finally, at the next members' meeting... If that member was satisfied, that member would bring the candidate to the members meeting and in front of the entire membership, and by the way, they had like 6,000, 8,000, in front of the entire membership, the candidate would then be interviewed and ask any question that members would have for this, uh, for the candidate. Their members meetings would go often until midnight or later, if you think ours are long. And then finally, the person would leave the meeting, they would discuss it among themselves, they would take a vote and bring the member in, uh, bring the candidate in as a member of their church. And only then would the person then be baptized and invited to the Lord's Supper. Now this wasn't just Spurgeon. This was actually no- normal, historically among Baptist churches. So Charles Octavius Booth who was the first pastor in the late 1880s uh, of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. Martin Luther, Luther King was, uh, was pastor himself. Booth, instructing how to bring members in, said that the members of the church must be such as really repentant of their sins and glad they received the word of the gospel and are baptized in accordance with the command of Christ. Christ. In other words, is the person converted? Is there evidence of regeneration? That's why they're doing this kind of process. And the booth would ex- examine uh, the members and exhort the members to, uh, to, to examine one another for holiness and uh, for Christ's likeness. You see, at the Garden church, we, we, we do emphasize membership in this way. And some people think we're weird. Maybe we are. I I looked up the definition of weird, and it says supernatural. Uh. Yeah, we're weird. (laughs) No, but I'm I'm using historic examples, though, to say that prior to, I'm not going to go in, I wish I had time to go into all the history because I love history. Everything kind of got screwed up in the 1900s. All right? All right? as it relates to this topic. You know, there's progress in other ways. Decrease uh, in, 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 so up until late 1800s, early 1900s, this was the normal practice among Baptist churches. That they would take membership very seriously. Now, okay, you might say, fine, it's historic. And you're talking about Baptist churches, and I don't even know if I consider myself a Baptist, you might say. Fair. Is it biblical? Isn't that the better question? Is it biblical? Is it biblical to take this seriously? Well, you've guessed it. I think it is. (laughs) Absolutely. So, first, in the New Covenant everybody who's reborn into this new covenant is regenerate. Let's just start with that. And the church is a new covenant community. Turn to Matthew 16. That's on page 771. And while you turn there, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to kind of hop around a little bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23, Paul exhorts the church in Corinth in this way. He says, "If therefore the whole church comes together and everybody speaks in tongues, and the outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds?" Now, I'm not going to get into the issue of speaking in tongues. That's not my point right now. What I want to point out is this, is that what he's saying is is when you gather as the church, it must make sense to outsiders and unbelievers. Meaning, what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is just showing us a glimpse into the assumption of the local church in the New Testament. That the local church had both in, the, in, their, in their public gatherings, such as this, that the local church had within that. The church, and then those outsiders or unbelievers. Paul then even makes this clearer when he exhorts the Corinthians on who they ought to be examining. What he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 is this. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Judge doesn't mean like being judgmental. But he's saying we're, we ought to be determining whether or not this individual is converted. To the best of our ability, are they giving evidence of regeneration? And so when he says that it's not those outside of the church that we're called to judge, what he's saying is is let everybody come and hear the gospel and freely explore the, the things of Christ. But those who you call the church ought to be scrutinized. Now, I don't mean overly scrutinized. I don't mean like we're, we're, we're asking you, you know, whether or not you uh, uh, drink Diet Coke or uh, whatever. Uh, but, but is there evidence that this person is saved? That's what he's saying. So, so first, biblical church membership is regenerate. Now, tying into that, is my second point, and that's where we're going to go to Matthew 16. Biblical church membership is responsible. It's a responsible kind of community. There's a responsibility that they share among each other. So, Matthew 16, are you there? You see right there in verse 18 that Jesus founds The church on the gospel that Peter just displayed, the rock of the gospel, he founds the church. There's the word church. Everybody say church. Church. The church is founded by Christ. The word there means ecclesia, it literally means assembly, a gathering founded on this gospel truth. Matthew 16 19, Jesus says, I'm going to give this church something. Look what he says. I will give you the keys. Everybody say keys. Keys. Jingle your keys. No, don't do that. (laughs) I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Remember that phrase. What are the keys of the kingdom? What is this binding and loosing that these keys are able to operate Well, he goes on, Matthew 18, turn the page. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, we see the classic passage there on church discipline. If somebody sins against you, pursue them in this way that Jesus says. And then finally, in verse 17, he says, Take it to what? Take it to the church. Not to the board, not to a disciplinary committee, not to the elders, but take the case to the church. The assembly that he just founded in Matthew 16. This gathering of believers. And then if they don't listen to the church, then remove them. Treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. And then he says in verse 18, almost word for word, what he said earlier in chapter 16 on what the keys do. Verse 18, he says, Truly I tell you, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Meaning, the keys of the kingdom are given to the church, the actual members, the people, the gathering, the assembly, And it is, the keys are, the authority to determine who represents Jesus publicly in this world. Who has that authority? It's not me. It's not Eric. It's not another one of our elders or our deacons. It is the gathered church. That's what I mean by responsibility. That's a pretty big responsibility. Those are pretty heavy keys that we've been given. So the church is a regenerate community and the church is a responsible community. where There's a responsibility to make sure that everybody within the church is a regenerate believer. This is why church membership is so different than membership at a gym, for example. I wonder how many of you have a gym membership. Don't raise your hand because of the next question I'm about to ask. I wonder how many of you use your gym membership. Right, like I know Planet Fitness is cheap, but for real, like how much money have they actually taken that you have not used? <laughs> Amen. How much is Planet Fitness? Fifteen dollars a month. Ten dollars. It's real cheap. It's real cheap. All right, uh, you pay your ten dollars a month at Planet Fitness, or what is it like fifty at the Y? Come on. You pay, you pay your monthly dues. What happens, though, if you just stop showing up? Let's say you haven't been to Planet Fitness for three months, which I know that's most everybody in the room probably, right? I'm just picking on you. I'm sure you work out five times a week. If, let's just assume that you don't show up for three months. Did you get a phone call from some of the other members who were concerned about your physical health? Did anybody reach out to you and say, brother, sister, I I know that you're part of this community here at Planet Fitness, and I'm just concerned that maybe you've gone back to Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) You don't hear that. Why? It's because for an organization like Planet Fitness, you pay your dues, you have access to the facilities, you can use it if you want, and when you want, you can come and go as you please, and nobody cares. Oh, and too often we treat the church the same way. Too often, church leadership is okay as long as you pay your tithes. But what I'm saying is simply this, the church is entirely different than that. We take responsibility for each other. There's a sense of concern that we have. The person who's sitting at the under, other end of the pew that's in covenant relationship with you in this church, the person you've never even talked to them before, but you know that they're part of this church. You, you share a sense of responsibility for the spiritual well-being of that individual. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. If somebody sins against you, What do you do? You catch someone in a grievous error, a rebellious action against Jesus. What do you do? Do you come and talk to Joel? Do you go talk to Andrew? Maybe you tell Kavan about it. No. He says, go to that individual one-on-one. That probably happens all the time. Or at least a good bit of time. That we would never even know about. Where members are just regularly exhorting one another to faithfulness. Now hey, I notice that you were rebelling against Jesus here. And Jesus says, if they listen to you, you've won a brother. Meaning they love you for it. They are so thankful that you had uh, the, the courage to come to them and, and to bring this to them. But if they don't listen to you, he says, take two or three others. And if they don't listen to those two or three others, then he says, tell it to the church. Bring it before the church. And then if they don't listen to the church, then remove them from membership. This is church discipline. To treat them as a tax collector or a gentile. Doesn't mean that we're mean to them. Jesus actually pursued tax collectors. Doesn't mean that we shunned them. Jesus actually took himself to the Gentiles. But but our relationship fundamentally changes with them, you see. I remember a, a time when I explained this to a, a young new believer and a couple months later, he came to me, and he said, he's like, you know, I've I really have been thinking about how he told me that if, if uh, people don't listen, if people are in sin and they don't listen to the church, then you should throw them back to the fishies. And I was like, ah, oh, throw them back to the fishies. Do you mean treat them as a tax collector? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that, that whole idea of just, like, throw them back to the fishies, man, it's it like really, really hit me, and, and it's And he he said, "It's, it's making me think about my own life and how I want to be the kind of person that would live a life that doesn't ever get removed from membership. Meaning, here's the point. This doctrine, now I'm moving into church discipline, but this actually should encourage you and not discourage you. Meaning this, if you are a Christian, you want to be in a church that is willing to remove you from membership if you rebel against Jesus. Amen. Are you with me? So responsibility, though, is also more than just simply church discipline. It's more than when somebody's falling into sin. Over 50 times in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see one another commands. Commands, many of which can only apply in committed, regular, local church relationships. Commands on how to treat one another. Commands on how to love one another in these communities. Commands on how to pursue one another. Commands on how to uh, even remove one another if necessary. Submit to one another. Tolerate one another. Stir one another up to love and to good deeds. Many of these things, again, can, uh, can really only be understood and lived out in a sense uh, if there's a sense of biblical church commitment to, to each other. Meaning, uh, as an example, bear one another's burdens. Okay, whose burdens am I to bear? Am I to bear the burdens of everybody I encounter? Am I to bear, bear the burdens of every single Christian in the whole world? I mean, Paul writes these things as if they can actually be lived out. You see? And so this responsibility then is created within the local church to bear the burdens of those within that church community. One survivor of sexual abuse put it like this. Church membership is burden-bearing. It's burden-sharing. And when it comes to the sexually abused, we heal better, they said, in a healthy church. Sharing one another's burdens can be backbreaking kind of work, but it's beautiful. It's restorative. Responsibility for one, another, for one another is possibly the greatest and most surprising countercultural marks of the New Testament church. Number three, church membership is also recognizable. Church membership is recognizable. Now, I won't spend much time here because this is really just an application point of the previous things that we've already been talking about. But we need to know who it is that we are committed to. We need to know who it is that we're in this kind of relationship with to watch over their soul. The New Testament assumes that people know who the members are. They're a recognizable bunch. Now, how are they recognizable? Are they recognizable because they all wear the same t-shirt? Or because they wear a certain kind of ring? How are they recognizable? They're recognizable biblically through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Meaning those who are baptized historically and biblically come into the local church, and the Lord's Supper then becomes an ongoing testimony as to who it is that makes up the local church. The public people of God. Am I equating church membership with salvation? No. It's possible to be saved and not be a member of a local church. As a matter of fact, everybody who is first saved is not yet a member of a local church. You could think of it in in this way. Someone might be legally adopted but never actually join the family physically. On paper... They're adopted. They are uh, a child of that family, but they've never, they've never actually come to the table. They've never, they've never come to the home and, and physically belonged to that family. Now you might say that's absurd. It's a crazy example. And I would say, exactly. Why would you not come to the table? Why would somebody be adopted by Christ and not come together in this kind of relationship with The body of Christ. Are you with me? So, to be a member of a local church does not make you a member of heaven. But rather, it signifies your membership in heaven. It doesn't make you a citizen of the kingdom of God. But rather, it displays your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Fourthly, church membership is relational. It's relational. Church membership is not a cult. It's not a holy huddle of perfect people. But rather, church membership is is actually a family of love. Love is probably the most powerful mark of the local church. John chapter 17, Jesus himself says that when the world sees the kind of love that creates unity in the body, in the local church, in this assembly, when they see it, it will be such a compelling force that they may believe that the Father sent Him. Meaning, being a church member is not just some, something like in name only. It's not just like some sentimental belonging. It's not a metaphorical commitment where I just kind of, you know, I'm a member of wherever I just happen to bounce around that day. But rather, church membership is actual flesh and blood relationships. It's relational. It has to be evident, it has to be put on display. It has to be something that can actually be seen by the outside world. So that they might say, wow, I I, I, I sense a love here. I sense a unity here that confirms the truthfulness of what you preach. If I could borrow the testimony of one young man from some years ago here at the Garden Church. He was an agnostic and he started attending one of our Bible studies and started interacting with different church members. And over a number of months, he started to believe that maybe these truths of Christianity are are true. And he came to, me, came to me once and he said, I think, I think I want to be a Christian. And I was like, really? What changed? And so he explained that to me. He said, I think, you know, uh, the, I think it's true. And it's partly because I've never experienced love like you guys have anywhere else. He said, you know, in these gatherings and when I'm talking to people, he said, I, he said, I hear, I hear people actually confessing their sins to each other. And at first, I thought that was so strange. But now I'm starting to think it's real as they respond in grace and love. You see, my point is this. The truths of Christianity were confirmed in the way that people loved. In the way that people loved. And that was Jesus' picture there. Oh, for more of that, amen. May may we continue to, to grow in love for one another. That puts on display the, the truthfulness of who Jesus is. A countercultural kind of love that you just don't find anywhere else. May we grow in our unity and diversity. May we grow in our affections for the sorrowful. May we grow in our binding of the broken. May we grow in our bearing of the weak. May we grow in our pursuit of the lost sheep. May we grow in our restoration of the repentant. Because we are a community of love. Of love. Now how does Revelation 22 at the end of the Bible, how does it describe Our response on that day when Eden, the new Eden, is refilled. In verse 3, he says, His servants in that day will worship Him. You know why? It's because Christ is the lifeblood of the local church. This is not actually about us, it's not actually about our church membership and our process. This is actually about Christ. This is not our church. This is not my church. This is His church. These are not our people. These are not my people. But these are His people. Are you with me? Don't you know that Christ gave His own life so that broken branches might find new life? There is no righteousness. There is no holiness. There is no forgiveness without the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ came so that we might have life and have life abundantly. Christ is the light that gave light to all. So be amazed, church, that He made us members of His body. Oh, He knows how to find a dead tree and plant it in His fertile soil so that it might grow again. He knows how to find that broken branch that is fit for just the firewood and and engraft it into His own tree, into His own body, so that it might bear fruit again. Yes, church membership, it, it reflects the membership that He bought for us in heaven. And that membership was not cheap. It was not $10 a month. You couldn't purchase it with money. You couldn't purchase that membership with good works. You could not purchase that membership with sacrifices. It could only be purchased by the blood of Christ. And He bought it for us with His precious blood. He left His glorious throne and came into this world to live a life For us and for our salvation. He is the suffering Savior who bore himself under temptation so that he might have the righteousness, donate his righteousness into our account. And on the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, an emblem of suffering and shame, he purchased for us our salvation. He purchased for us our membership in his kingdom, our citizenship in heaven. But three days later, you see, Christianity is not just a religion of sorrow. We do suffer in this world, but it's not just a religion of suffering. Christianity has hope, real hope, freed from guilt. Freed from shame. Why? Because three days later, Christ got up from the dead. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. And rising, He justified freely forever. And one day, one day, earth will be filled with His presence. One day we will see the true people of God coming together forever, serving the King. One day He's coming. Oh, glorious day. And So be amazed that you're part of the family of God. Be amazed that Jesus calls you brother and sister. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ's work on our behalf. Purchasing our redemption. Bringing us into this kind of community. Lord, I pray that You would help us as we seek to live lives that give evidence of regeneration. Taking responsibility for one another. A recognizable community. Growing in our relationships. Growing in our love. For our good and for Your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.